Sagar Bhatt. Welcome to the Anxiety Lab. I don't know that I've said it in that order before. Uh, I think it's fine. I don't know if you would have questioned it. Are you questioning it now? Probably not. Anyway, I am grateful that you're here. Grateful that we get to exist in this, I guess, kind of trippy moment. Because look, I'm, I'm recording this before you're listening, technically. Although, right now, we're in the same now as you are hearing these words right now. So we're, yeah, it's, it's a little bit trippy in that way. That's all I have to say about that. I don't have to keep trying to ruminate on that and potentially drive this intro into oblivion as I try to figure out the nature of time. No, no, we got an important episode to present. So let's present it. This conversation is with Koshin Paley Ellison. He was just incredible to talk to. I was uh, editing it this morning and just appreciating how calm and wise and at times very sharp, he made me squirm on a few occasions just by pushing back on my various assumptions and statements and challenging me, uh, are you sure or is that just a story? Uh, definitely kept me on my toes and I will remember this conversation for a long time. See, that's the thing with these Zen teachers. They have these robes and big compassionate energy. Sometimes you don't realize that beneath that robe is a sniper rifle. He definitely poked a few holes in me and I am better for it and you will be better for listening to it happen. Um, all in all, an absolute delight to have on. Koshin is a Zen teacher, a psychotherapist, a chaplain. He's co-founder of the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care, which is a nonprofit center that offers contemplative approaches to care through education, personal caregiving, and Zen practice. You could find that at zencare.org, uh, and I would recommend doing so. They have a lot of trainings, retreats, workshops for people of all different backgrounds and experience levels. I've been there a few times. Koshin is also the author of several books, including most recently, Wholehearted, Slow Down, Help Out, Wake Up, uh, which I have read and fully endorse. So I don't have much more to say other than I don't have much more to say. Please rate and review if you haven't yet done so. It would mean a lot if you could, on Apple, uh, give me a rating and a review, as I just said. I, it would really help me get this to more listeners. And also tell a friend if you're enjoying this. Again, I'm, I'm uh, working hard at this. I'm doing it by myself. And it would be pretty cool to have this reach other people who are also interested in, in perhaps these kind of things. And of course, as always, please hit me up at theanxietylab.com for any questions, comments, uh, I'm still open to attacks. I, I still am not getting a huge amount of, of emails. So uh, even an attack would be a welcomed read at this point for me, at this stage in my podcasting career. I, I'm realizing I, I might have misspoke. It's not theanxietylab.com. Uh, it's an email address, theanxietylab at gmail.com. That's how you could reach me. So that's it for now. Please enjoy this episode with the incredible Koshin Paley Ellison. It's so good to see you. I enjoy, I really enjoyed your book. Uh, similar to the last episode, I, I'm kind of maybe I just need to acknowledge that that we're coming in off a period of some technical difficulties, and it's always the best way for me to get to know someone in in these unexpected moments that I didn't plan 
where I feel a little some some combination of shame and anxiety and fear uh, is is what I'm coming in hot off of, and and so I just wanted to name that. But you seemed throughout that entire time, you were just so calm. You really proved <laughs> that that you've got the goods. Well, what are you gonna do? You know, what are you gonna do? And what's really important? I mean, to me, the chance to be in our bodies and be in our minds is there's no moment that's not a great time to practice. So when everything kind of goes to shit or everything kind of falls apart, it's like, then who are you? And I feel like those moments are so juicy for how to live, how to live. Mm-hmm. Yeah, dealing with presentation, I'm always expecting to present you know, certain aspects of myself and, and there's certain aspects I wasn't planning on being on display. I want to be a good host. I, I, I don't want to be someone who doesn't know how to get things started properly. Uh, although I, I was thinking it would be a fun TV series, uh, like, like exposing monks. I, I'd invite all of these credentialed meditation people on the podcast, but then it's just like unrelenting technical issues at the beginning and, and just nonstop. And, and at some point they break and then, and then that's the content that you know, watch these people fall apart or not. Right. Yeah. We can't use the footage of this Koshin Paley guy. He, he's not breaking, <laughs> <laughs> but listen, I'm, I'm so happy to have you. And I, I wanted to talk to you about a couple things. Well, more than a couple things. We'll, we'll see where this goes. Um, but I'd love to start with your book, Wholehearted. One part that really struck me was this passage about clearing away the fog uh, that really resonated. Because I, I do, yeah, I often feel like I'm living my life in a fog. So you know, before I ask you about clearing away the fog, I, I, I first just would love to define the fog. And the way I understand it is... As you explained it, it, it was just some level of stimulation addiction, whether it's devices, substances. For me, a big addiction is thoughts and fantasies. And, you know, I'm just in this world of, of just, yeah, thoughts and I'm, I'm distracted. And it's, it's interesting to note how being on the phone feeds more thoughts and fantasies. Like, like this morning, I, I checked my email first thing. And which is something I try to avoid, but this time I caved and I got an invitation to an event tomorrow. It was last minute. Now I'm like, shit, should I go to this? Should I change my plans? Anxiety. And, and so there was this, I guess, fog of kind of thoughts and projections and, you know, this, this space where going or not going to this event are the only things that matter. And I'm like obsessed. Mm -hmm. What really matters? What does really matter? Whether you go to the event or not go to the event, whether we decide to go outside or not go outside, is that really what's most important? To me, it kind of, kind of goes back to what we were originally talking about, which was how are you in the midst of your life? And, you know, I, as often I go back to this wonderful quote that I'm probably just paraphrasing by Toni Morrison, where she says, you know, why is just too difficult? So why, you know, or, what but how is the place of refuge so how we are in our life and how we are in our process of decision making to me is what makes life interesting and as the wonderful founder of soto zen in japan dogen talks about you know that our feelings become thoughts and our thoughts become words and then the words become 
actions and the actions become our character. And so like looking at how do we like kind of slowly rewind that and be like, whoa, okay. So I'm feeling a little anxious, big deal. Maybe I'm anxious because this is meaningful. And sometimes we attribute things as anxiety when it might mean our heart is beating a little quickly. It might mean that we're feeling just a little bit more tenderness. It might mean we're just excited. And so just kind of slowing it all down and having like leaning in and having some more curiosity to me is such mm. good medicine. Yeah, I guess leaning in is the part that this, I guess, stimulation addiction keeps us away from. Totally. Right. Really good at it. Yeah. And and was that kind of what you meant when I was describing the fog of these types of things? And it's really just the ways that these stimuli feed the mind and get the mind going on overdrive. And we think that things matter that actually don't when we as you put it, lean in to the moment, right? Absolutely. So this was, you know, the book came out a couple of years ago and you talked about you had this new shiny phone and you couldn't stay off it. You kept wanting to touch it. How are you these days with your phone? I like to leave it alone. <laughs> you know, I, it's so interesting. You know, I also learned the other day that, you know, they part of the design of it is like bright colors to like make it like this very tempting thing. And so a, a student of mine actually said that you, there's actually, you can put grayscale on your phone and actually suddenly it becomes not as interesting. And so, you know, just yeah. for me is, you know, yeah, I, it's like one of the few, it feels like a luxury to have it and to, you know, it can do so many things. And it can also be this just rabbit hole of inattention. And it, am I really doing what is meaningful for me? Am I really paying attention to what I really care about? Am I really giving my cats enough love or Toto? You know, am I really paying attention? You see, you know, remember in the, when people used to go to restaurants? You know, there was that time when people used to go to these places called restaurants. It's a vague memory. <laughs> In ancient yeah. times. And I just remember actually right before the shutdown for COVID, you know, the, we went to this restaurant and just like, it was like a sea of phones. And we, someone was taking us to this very wonderful restaurant and delicious food and beautiful place and and it was amazing. You just saw these circles of lights everywhere. And no one was talking to each other. Everyone was on their phone. And I just like went for a little walk around. And was like, what? I was just so curious, you know, kind of what are they looking at? And pretty much everyone was on either Facebook or Instagram. Right. And then you went to tweet this observation. And then you were one of the masses at that point. No, it was just, it made me so sad, actually. It's like, wow, like, here we are in this big, beautiful place with the food is brought on these beautiful plates. And it was like this farm to table kind of situation, like really beautiful food. And 
and no one was, people were just shoveling it into their mouth and not even connecting. <laughs> and so we forget actually what it means to connect. And now on where most of us live is on Zoom or FaceTime or some other uh, video conference. And people also don't realize how they are on that matters. And we forget, we get so distracted because we're bored or we're uncomfortable or we start doing other things. We turn our camera off. We just don't care. And so it, it feels not far away from those yeah. ancient times of those places called restaurants. I, I was one of those people that you'd be looking at and would be, and, and I'm a meditator. I saw you there. I saw you there. <laughs> you know what I was doing? I was yelping for a better restaurant. As I was probably shoving food in my mouth. That's one of my favorite things. I'll go to some classy, well-reviewed restaurant, and then I'll sit there and read other reviews of which place I should have gone to. And that's, you know, I, I say that slightly jokingly, but it does, it is a habit. And, and, and that does speak to, to me, the false promise of the phone, you know, given how it seems as though we have access to all of the information, all of the answers and and I think that feeds this 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 kind of grasping energy that's already that was already there before phones, but this sense that we're chasing some kind of permanent satisfaction mm. is an illusion that the phone props up. If I could just read enough reviews, if I can just whatever look at enough matches on Tinder or whatever, if I could just scroll, if I could get the critical amount of likes on a post, that that I guess that's the promise is that there, there's something permanently fulfilling there, right? You know, one of the sentences that, that struck out from that passage in the book was, nowadays when people are out with their friends, they can feel that the friends on their phone are more important than the ones in front of them. That, that's exactly what you were talking about. And I just had to read that a few times, and I was like, okay, yeah, but why, why is that? Why? And, and I, I think it's because we the friends on our phones play into our fairy tales of what life is, right? Or, or what life should be. They can, they can, you know, and I think that also we can love to like dog the phone. The phone is not the problem. You know, the Shakyamuni Buddha, mm. the historical Buddha talked very clearly about the same thing, which was happening 2,600 years ago between Nepal and India. Right. And so, this aversion of actually not really being where we are is nothing new. You know, now we just happen to call it a phone and then we're like, yeah, those damn phones or social media, it's not that. That's just a symptom of our addiction mm. to not being where we are, which is a deprivation that needs medicine. I guess that's the next question. So when we are, in a sense, fleeing to these things, fleeing to these stimuli, what is it that we're running away from? I, I was you know, having a conversation with a few meditators and we were talking about this, about how we're always looking for something, we're always reaching for our phones, checking email. And I was talking about how, well, that, you know, we're in pain and we're trying to end, stop the pain by looking at these devices. And then other people were like, well, no, maybe it's just boredom. I don't know that I'm actually in pain. I, I don't know that I'm suffering. It's just that I'm, I, I want life to be a little bit more enhanced. And that, that's kind of where we left it. So I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on 
what that dynamic is. You know, again, I just love, you know, a lineage is so great because it just basically is filled with stories of other folks who have struggled, right? And so that we tend to think that our struggle is so different and so unique and that we don't actually often live our lives, right? That we often are living in fear of missing out of even what you were calling boredom. To me, boredom is the only time to be bored is if you're not paying attention and you're not curious about your life. You know, I just think very often of the exquisiteness of attention that I learned from the time mm -hmm. that I was up in Sing Sing, maximum security prison Chodo and myself we used to go up there on Sundays to lead med Zen meditation. And these are guys who were living there pretty much for life. And in these little teeny tiny rooms where there's not much going on, you know, and easy to be bored and distracted. And what I learned from these guys who had done terrible things in their life, that I was, at first I learned that we're not just what we do, that there's a big difference between our actions. So we can like berate ourselves or shame ourselves for what we've done. We're responsible for what we do. We're responsible for what we think. We're responsible for what we say, but we're not, that's not the whole picture. It's not the whole story. And so learning how to slow down and really feel whatever that is that we have done, said, or thought, to me, is part of what gets gets uncovered when we say we're bored. I'm bored. You know, it's like, <laughs> how is that possible? Like life, like here I am sitting at this table that I don't really often sit at. And it's so amazing to actually see how it's really changed over the years. And it's amazing to see that. Like this wood comes from actually India and like, wow, like, and it's really changed as I've been stewarding it over the years, it's different. And how interesting, or just to be able to look at my cat and that we're always changing. And it's just so amazing when we say we're bored, we're just like, it's so heartbreaking. And one of the reasons I know it's heartbreaking, aside from how much better and exciting and alive I feel when I'm actually where I am, like here with you, sitting at this table next to my two cats, <laughs> is that we have the pleasure and privilege of being with many people who are dying. And over the years, the message is consistent across class, across race, across, you know, celebrity and, you know, regular folks like all of us. That mostly the regrets of the dying when they actually know that they're dying uh -huh. is that what were they doing with their time? What the hell was I doing? in the sense of wasted time and the, like the really 
intense mirror of that. And so it's so amazing that we have this opportunity to learn from that. Like, all right, so the reports from the edge are, this is what you have. <laughs> and yeah, as you know, there's this chant that is chanted every night in most Soto Zen temples. It says, let me respectfully remind you, life and death are of supreme importance. Time swiftly passes by and opportunities are lost. On this night, the days of my life are decreased by one. Each of us must strive to awaken, awaken, take heed, don't squander your life. And so like, there's a reason why that's like, it's like, hey, <laughs> this is it. And so it makes, to me, makes life so joyful. Like that, wow, like what are those two switches behind you actually turn on and how does that change your room and how often and how do you feel looking into that mirror? Like, I'm so curious about things and I see shadows behind you. I'm like, what are those shadows from? I can only imagine, but it's so interesting. <laughs> yeah. To answer your question, I mean, this, this podcast is audio only. Uh, so the visual, this this one on the right will just light up the closet when I'm picking up clothes. And then the other one actually controls the light in the other room. So I will, I could just disrupt my girlfriend. She's in there doing her job. I, I could just startle her real quick. Let me, let, let's just do it real quick. Sorry, just testing. And how do you feel looking into that mirror? Let's try it. It felt, I, I, I stood up and actually did it. Um, you know, my looks in the mirror are always some level of self-evaluation. And I, I think that's more of mm -hmm. the fear and maybe the stories. And I'm, I'm really invested in how I look, where my life is going. And, and maybe, pull, and, and I think what you're speaking to is, Jesus Christ, just look at, you're this person that's alive and you're moving. That's not enough. You get to just be in this room and maybe have a second of your, to even just have the time to, to check yourself out is, you know, in, in, in many people's lives, a luxury in itself. So mm -hmm. I, I hear you there. It is a, a, just the sheer, and I guess it, it takes some habit for it to really reveal itself. Some, mm. You know, meditation formally, but but also just returning more and more to the moment. I think when you get into this phone brain, putting it down for one second and looking at a tree isn't going to do anything oh, because yes, it, it hasn't had. <laughs> if you really put it down for a minute and really look at the tree, you will be changed. Mm. But not if you just go like, yeah, whatever. Look at the tree, yeah. Huh. Just keep going. <laughs> But if you really say, I am going to put away my phone and really look. I, I mean, I can get there on occasion quickly, even if it's a day I didn't practice. If it's like a day where I'm totally just, you know, in my head and stressed and I'm anxious and there's days where I know I'm anxious. I know that if I meditated for even just five minutes right now, I would feel better. But I don't. And I just continue to whatever obsess about whatever I'm obsessing about. 
Well, you won't continue meditating if you want to feel better. That is true as well. Um, But I think I would, in those moments, maybe better is the wrong word, but I would at least, in that process of meditation, become a little, I, I would loosen from whatever it is that I'm ruminating on a little bit. You're not buying that either? Maybe. <laughs> uh, so, so You don't have to sell, though. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm always selling. I have to, I'm worthless if I can't sell anything. So far, so far. But, you know, I've had experiences where I've been immensely present with a tree or something, and, mm-hmm. and the beauty of it has emerged. I, I was really... Um, Maybe about 15 years ago, I started reading Krishnamurti and I was just his teaching about, well, just let go of the word tree, let go of all of these, all of this language and just look at this mm-hmm. thing. And, and that was a pretty big moment for me to really see it in its full beauty. This, this thing that's just on this plane of reality that I'm a part of and it just grew here and this is where I get to occupy. It's, it's really mind blowing. And so, you know, that is a place I could come back to every now and then, but I don't think it's always available. I think there's times when, if I'm fully just, you know, I almost have to detox from the phone or from pleasure first before the the beauty of mundane reality, or at the time it feels mundane, reveals itself. Really? Are you sure? Actually, I'm not sure now that I'm talking. I don't, I don't know. I don't know that I know that. I was just talking to a friend of mine named Jerry Colonna, who's just this wonderful friend and mentor of mine. And he um, he uses this thing saying, you know, what's the story you're telling yourself? And I would say that to you. It's just, it sounds like you have a story about it. Yeah. As opposed to like, actually, what is fresh? Because you don't know. Like when I, here's a phone and when I put it down, this time, who knows what will happen? Unless you're a prophet. But it's interesting, though, I think, you know, because I think that in my experience, what's so fascinating about being alive, too, is just noticing the stories that we're telling ourselves, like, oh, I'm going to go downtown today, or I'm going to go wherever today, and it's going to be like this. We have no idea. Like, first of all, we don't know yeah. really anything about it. Most of the things we say we know are just assumptions and some fantasy. And it actually often, at least in my experience, takes me away from actually experiencing it. Like, who knows what it will be like to step outside today? on this day that has never happened before. Mm-hmm. Right, but we do respect the fruits of habit and practice. Without attaching to some outcome. Mm. I don't know how things are gonna go. Right. I've been meditating almost, almost 40 years and like, so what? You know, like, but and yet I, I, do I notice changes over time? Sure. And yet I know if I stop sitting and stop practicing 
throughout the day, my life could easily slide into a whole other direction. No problem. I don't have any fantasy of any of arrival. And one of the things I love so much is we, our teacher, you know, she's 92 and she's this amazing. She does yoga every day. She's out in the garden every day. She's like one of the most active, amazing people on the move at 92, learning and keeps looking at her conditioning and keeps looking at all the layers that keep emerging and the adventure in my experience is to actually keep looking at that, like, whoa, what's that today? All the different like kind of scrims that put get pulled down and so that makes us feel a little bit more not together. Mm. Uh, yeah, I appreciate all of that. Um, thank you for pointing that out. I'm, I'm definitely liable to holding on to patterns, holding on to expectations. I, I could be very rigid in, in those ways. So far. <laughs> uh, yes, yet again, <laughs> so far. And what about, how do you experiment with your anxiety? I think what I'm working on now is I so often fall into these grooves of decision analysis of what, you know, sometimes it's as small as what am I going to wear tomorrow? And I'll just go back and forth. And, and even as it's happening, I know that this is silly and it doesn't require this level of thought. And I should probably just pick something. It makes no difference. Um, and, and yet it, it's, it's still so sticky, you know? And so what I'm experimenting with is even as, as awful as it feels and as, as, you know, I've, I've talked about it as feeling irresponsible to put down this habit of overthinking. It feels irresponsible because it, it feels responsible to overthink. And I'm, I'm just starting to maybe will myself to put it down and let something else emerge. And, and, and I think that's what I was trying to, I guess, speak to earlier is, is you know, for me that, that emergence, it needs t time and, and practice to develop. And, I'm, and, and to your point, that doesn't always have to be true. That, that's not necessarily who I am and what the process has to be. But I think upon immediately putting down a habit of going to my phone or overthinking, it, it, I feel empty and scared and, and you know, I, I, I don't necessarily feel good. I feel unsafe. And so the, the worrying helps me feel safe. Does it really? Does it work? Yeah, I feel, I feel like if I'm not worrying about a problem... Uh, I am, am more at risk. I'm more vulnerable. That's the feeling. I know it's not true, but th I think that's the feeling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's the key part, right? Like, to, you know, how do you just stay with the feeling? Like, oh, I have this feeling, and I know it's... And it can easily turn it into a thought and then into a reality. Right. It's like that there's this really cool story that I love so much about the time of the Buddha. And there was in the time of the Buddha, there was this guy named Mara who was like the personification of, you know, all the bad shit, basically, like all the delusions and fear and everything and all in one person. Um you know, Mara was like on hanging out on the street and with his 
attendant and they see this person walking down the street and his attendant's like, oh my God, we got to get that person. They're about to wake up. They're about to wake up, you know, and then we're going to lose them from our group, you know, the deluded group. <laughs> and Mara's like, don't worry about it. Just watch, you know, they're going to have an insight. Go, ah, whoa. And then they'll turn it into an idea. Mm. And then they'll turn it into a belief. And then they'll be back with us. <laughs> and so then they watch the person go, oh, whoa. And then like feel kind of good and start walking down the street and suddenly kind of coagulating as if reality is now known. <laughs> that reminds me of two things. One is I, I was... Tell me if this is in the vicinity of what, what you're getting to. Right? We can go We can go anywhere. <laughs> uh, I like this. I'm having fun. Uh, so Pema Children talks about, you know, groundlessness and, and then, you know, let go of, of anything and everything that you're holding on to, including the teaching of groundlessness. Mm-hmm. And then so that's one place I wanted to hit. And the second is is also from your book. You you have this chapter about the lengths we go to prop up images of ourselves, and and you use the analogy of parade floats, and I really enjoyed that um, because it speaks to how inflated and just full of air these puffed up versions of ourselves are, and and brilliantly too, it speaks to just the level of strain of all of this effort and all the people on the ground who are you know, really trying to hold it up. And, and that's kind of parts of ourselves that just the anguish of trying to consistently be this person. And so where I want to go with what you just said is, and I've only because I go here all the time, whenever I have an insight is okay, let's say I have this insight about the truth or my addiction to grandiosity or that. Yeah, I am propping myself up and let's just let go. That will just become a new float, you know, my, my float now, it's just the same. I'm still a guy holding up a float, but now the float is vulnerable, insightful guy. Did that ever happen with you? Because you um, had that realization about yourself. And, and, you know, obviously you're wearing a robe. You're very decorated and respected in, in your circles. And um, I imagine many other circles, circles in general, respect you. <laughs> I, I think squares as well, other shapes, whatever. How have you worked with, this sense of, you know, ego and inflation co-opting some of this spiritual stuff, right? Well, it's interesting. You bring up two kind of things that are really interesting to reflect on. One is, you know, the fact that, yeah, so like when I actually, after I first ordained, I would thought I was like pretty special really special and like actually this kind of you could say like this golden buddha hot air balloon you know like i was there to bring in down the street goodness and wellness for all beings and and i was kind of a jerk really and you know because i wanted everyone to also recognize that that i was like this so beneficent so helpful and it was really it's when i started doing clinical work and doing chaplaincy in the hospital and like i remember the first day going up on the floor and just feeling like i am like a golden unicorn you know with hello kitty 
riding on top of it. Like, it's like so helpful and cute and helpful and compassionate. And I remember I walk in my first room and I was like so ready to like share the joy and the light. <laughs> and I remember walking in and this woman says, hello, sexy. And I was like, it just like burst my balloon right there. I was like, that can't be happening. Ah. What is that about? And that was like the beginning of, for me, like entering Amazing. reality. <laughs> like not like, whoa, like I don't need anyone to carry that hot air balloon of me anymore. And the other thing you bring up, which is a really interesting thing that we kind of all do to people in robes, people in white coats, you know, people with some kind of power and authority, whether it's a doctor or a police person or we can, or a spiritual teacher or monastic that we can put a lot onto them, right? So our work, I think, whenever we have kind of societal or cultural or spiritual power is with we have to do a lot of work ourselves to actually make sure we're pretty grounded and not kind of careening in on a big hot air float so that you don't believe the projections you don't believe all the things that people think of you yeah that i'm so even the things you were saying very nice things but like is it true? I don't Who knows? I don't know. Like, I, I love practice. I'm dedicated to practice. I'm dedicated to service. And I'm an imperfect person, right? I'm a human being, right? And so I think it's always, it's very interesting, right? So that part of us that wants ourselves to inflate and be known as a certain thing, which is also not a human thing, as well as how other we do that to other people and we we put like we cover people with giant sticky notes you are mm. a nice mm. person you are a this kind of person you know it was so interesting yeah that yesterday we were training a group of physicians and you know we had them talking about their struggles with each other. And and they just felt like, oh, I carried this around with me and I'm scared for anyone to see it, you know? And physicians also, and I think most of us have all of these like private, shameful, secret things that actually eat away at us. And it makes us kind of crazy. And so to me, part of the medicine is actually having real relationships. And it kind of goes back to what we we're talking about before about paying attention, like really using your time instead of being on your phone, actually talking mm -hmm. to someone and actually connecting about what's what you struggle with, what actually how you're holding on to the struggle or the story. And how do you open, as Kosho Uchiyama Roshi beautifully talks about in his book, Opening the Hand of Thought, how do you open your hand of your own suffering and do something new? Hmm. Right. So when we, when we talk about relationships, why are you laughing? <laughs> I 
it's joyful to me. It could could be could be worse. I I just went immediately. I'm doing something stupid. I'm not pausing long enough. I have food in my mouth. I, I just went to that place of shame. I that's how cut off I am from joy, Koshin. So far, so far. That could that could change in a moment. It already has. Do you believe me? Only you know. I can't I can't crack you. Uh so my, my question was with regards to relationships. I mean, to me, you're talking about the value of all of these parts of ourselves that we think are ugly, that aren't, but we think, I mean, I think they are. All of these parts that I have to, you know, this, this parade float version of myself is, is a distraction from, oh, I hope they don't see this part of me or that part of me or know that I'm capable of this or that, all of these unflattering, you know. And so to have people meet you in those places, you know, to really see you in those places and to love you in those places is thoroughly healing. Is that what you're speaking to? It can be. And, but also we have to be, it's easy to say, (laughs) that's all you have to do. But I think the practice of it is learning how to be uncomfortable and awkward because sometimes when we start to like reveal ourselves to people who we decide that we can do that with, it can be very awkward and we might feel really uncomfortable. But what also happens is if we can just weather it just enough, we end up feeling in general, in my own experience, a lot of relief, like, ah, oh, I said it and you actually heard me. How amazing is that? Totally, yeah. How sweet is that? Mm. We're really here together. Yeah, and I think, I mean, that that to me is, I mean, as far as my own process, and I, I've heard other people talk about this, and it seems to be fairly, you know, universal amongst people who are you know, dealing with shame is kind of this original wound, this this place that we're not seen for who we truly are, for various reasons, you know, in childhood, our, our caretakers are distracted or, you know, abusive at times. There's volatility and we're not nurtured and we don't carry within ourselves some deep sense of okayness. And so for me, that's, it's important to remember that. It's, it's important to look back at some of the stuff I've gone through. And, and if you don't mind, I, 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 you got very personal in your book about having dealt with some volatility in your household and then going to, you know, you being a gay person, going to school, you were bullied. And obviously, on one level, I, I, you know, it would be offensive if I suggested that I could relate because I haven't experienced those particular things. But I do want to, what does, at least what that stirs up for me is just the compounding nature of of trauma, I guess. Like when you're, you know, that bullying is going to be a hundred times worse if, if you're already going into that situation with unresolved wounds. Big time. And, and, you know, my heart opened up when I was reading that. What I want to ask is the usefulness in mining that history. Mm-hmm. Because so much is, is said about relationships, as, as said on this podcast already, uh, you know, about opening up to the magic of, you know, the cats that are right next to you, all of this 
stuff that's in front of us and, and this amazing aliveness. But but what is the value in maybe looking back at that stuff and like, okay, yeah, this is why I'm, you know, I was deprived of something that I deserved and I need to make sure I understand that I did deserve that thorough uh, uh, feeling of okayness. Do you understand? I, I've, I guess, asked enough of a question. I'm happy to say more, um, but feel free to jump in. I'll just go ahead because you're, <laughs> you're smiling. That's uh, so sweet. Oh, thank you. Um, there are some anxiety experts out there. I, I listened to this person, Judson Brewer. Are you familiar? Judd, he's my buddy. Small world. So... <laughs> He, he emphasizes the real-time work. You know, it, it, the anxiety is not so much about where it comes from as opposed mm-hmm. to the fact that it's here. And let's work with it as we're here, as it's showing up right now and create new habits. And part of those habits are bringing in mindfulness, expanding our sense of perception into all of these ima- magical, radiant things that are happening around us. Also in seeing that the worrying isn't serving a purpose. But he doesn't put much emphasis on mining one's history. And, and I, mm-hmm. of course, for me, thinking about what I've gone through helps me find mm-hmm. that tenderness towards myself. So where I'm, I'm putting a big mess on, on your plate here as far as a question, but I'd, I'd just love to hear you talk about this. <laughs> so the founder of the Zen school, again, that we work with, um, Dogen, and he you know, he was very clear in his kind of, and I always think of it as an educational, psychological, and spiritual map. He said, to study the way is to study the self. To study the self is to loosen the self. And to loosen the self is to allow the 10,000 things to flow through you. So let me just break that down a little bit. And for me, like, I remember hearing that when I was 16, I was like, wow, whoa, that is like serious shit. Like, so, cause I experienced, even as a young person, a lot of people wanting to jump to like the good spiritual feeling, allowing the world to enter you and like, oh, that's so great. And like, mm. and often now we call that a spiritual bypass cause you're not doing the work. And so, we have to start in some ways and begin with again and again to study the self. So like, what, who is this little meat puppet here? You know, like who is this skin bag? You know, like what's happened to me? And for a long time, you know, I, yeah, as you said, you know, I grew up being bullied. I experienced sexual and physical and verbal uh, abuse and violence. I experienced, a long period of anti-Semitic violence as a kid and where we were shot at and just terrible things happen. And, and for a long time, I held that kind of, uh, protective layer of victim. Like I was a victim of those things. I felt victimized by those things. And through my own ongoing work, which was mostly thanks to some amazing therapists, and I continue to work in therapy because I found an amazing, she's a healer and, and that's really what she is, even though she's trained as a Jungian analyst. Uh, 
is that, yeah, you have to keep looking at that. Like, what is that? And how am I so tight around it? You know, very similar to the Buddha's, you know, I think it's Dogen's interpretation of the Four Noble Truths, you know, that the life that they're suffering, we get tight, we've been hurt. And then it's the story around the hurt that's the problem. Like I still know to this day that those things were totally effed up. Like, like those things were terrible things that I experienced. It's just subjectively true. And the people who perpetrated them are totally responsible for those things. But I also was adding another layer to that and really making sure like, I am the victim of these things. And I was walking around like that. And so then when I got into spiritual practice, now I can see how I, like, I really wanted everyone just to think I was like this shiny golden unicorn because I didn't, it was just another defense so that mm. people wouldn't get close and that no one would really know me as I was, which is, you know, a complex human being with lots of experiences, which is the beauty of being human. And so, yeah, so the, to do that work is really important, I think, and not emphasized enough, I think, in spiritual circles. And then once you can do that, that's when you start to open that hand, or as the Buddha talked about, you know, like noticing that there's a cause of the suffering, which is grasping. And I was grasping onto something that wasn't helpful, which was the story around it, which says, Caution is unsafe. So I was an adult and still thinking I'm unsafe as if I'm still living in this mm -hmm. Adirondack town being circled with guns, you know, or being, you know, taunted or whatever that is. It's as if it's still happening. I wasn't in time. And so the beauty of the practice is learning again and again to keep opening it up, opening it up. And is that really what's true right now? Is that really true? Or is that, the, as you were talking right. about earlier, the feeling of it, I might feel afraid or might feel like, uh-oh, but learning how to do something new. And then that's when the beauty, as we were talking about earlier, like the beauty of the tree can enter you or the right. beauty of actually feeling pain or the beauty of feeling joy or the whole the whole gamut or as it's often you know talked about like the ten thousand joys and the ten thousand sorrows can just be part of life like wow i'm alive and i can just feel all the feels without becoming the feeling easy to say uh, yeah uh, thank you for uh, sharing that. I, so I think what I'm getting from that is mm -hmm. that we are letting all of this stuff in that in a way undercuts mm -hmm. this assumption we've been carrying, you know, the, these oh, memories wow. are sometimes popping up in ways that contribute to this false sense of who we are as this bad person, this worthless person, right? Uh, and, and to maybe you know, see them as, I guess, dream-like things that are dancing across our minds that, that may not be rooted in any kind of reality. And, and I think that's mm -hmm. something that is 
helped by a, a some kind of practice in, in encountering the present moment. Uh, but with specific regards to maybe, yeah, looking back at that stuff and as a way to feel tender towards, you know, picturing myself as a child in these moments and really just holding that, you know, to me, that's been a little bit restorative, you know, and, and, and I think some of that, while I'm doing it, maybe takes me out of at least the immediate present because I am then going in thought, but it st- still has value. Does that make sense? Totally. Mm. Great. How you feeling? Jazzy. <laughs> I love it. Uh, How are you feeling? Pretty, pretty good. I'm appreciating the quality of your attention, or not attention, I mean compassion and, and willingness to be a part of this conversation. I am a little self-conscious that I rambled a few minutes ago and um, maybe worried a, about that. That, I'm a, might, that might be a story. Point heard. So I want to talk about something you mentioned that I have a lot of, I identified with. I'm, I'm just trying to find it in my notes here. So in your book, you, you, you mentioned a story regarding your father who was in a supermarket and mm-hmm. basically had the same interaction with someone every week. Just, hi, how are you? Good. Very good, rote. Good, good. Yeah. And, and one day the person was like, well, do you really want to know? And your dad said, yeah. And then he opened up about his, his I think, son being terminally ill. And then it was this bonding moment. Uh, I think there were tears. I forget if it was both of them crying or... Yeah. And then they and then they embraced. So a, a beautiful, you know, human moment, mm-hmm. and and I guess speaks to connection being available in all of these places where uh, we don't we don't assume that it's mm-hmm. there, where we assume it's not there. Totally. Uh, and then you said something afterwards that I really thought about. I know sometimes people become stressed about this kind of exchange because they worry that then they have to fix whatever the problem is. We become afraid that now we have to take care of everything, that we're responsible for everything. Well, we are, but not in the way that we're afraid of. Loving action is not about fixing. Most of the time, fixing whatever it is that needs fixing isn't within the scope of our power anyway. And I guess the reason I thought about that is I often get stressed with those kind of exchanges. This obviously goes back to what we were saying about maybe various wounds from childhood and, you know, but for me, a lot of times attending to the needs of others, there's this fear of losing myself there. And so even in the smallest of ways, I'll get a friend, I'll have a tech, a friend text me, uh, Hey, I'm in town this weekend. Let's get a drink. And I'll just feel that pinch of like, ah, damn it. You know, or if it's something, you know, bigger where someone's more in need or something. It kind of just got me thinking where that comes from, that aversion. Well, we're so used to, you know, in ancient times, before the current pandemic, there was a pandemic of social isolation where we have gotten into the habit of not wanting to be involved and not knowing how to be involved. I was talking with my friend Dan and Bianca the other day, and they were talking about that. No one, like we go to school, right? We go to high school or maybe elementary school, maybe college. 
And we take all these classes, but we never learn actually, there are no classes really about how to be in relationship with other people, how to listen to other people. Maybe there is a, like a really cool progressive school. You might have a cool elective. But in general, what's so odd is that there are no classes about how to be a parent. There are no classes about how to be an upright human being in yourself. And so we just are not, we haven't learned that. And so actually a big part of, you know, what we do at the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care is also that we have these courses called like Foundations in Contemplative Care, which is actually teaching people how to be in relationship with each other. Because we don't know, because suddenly like someone calls and we wanna, they wanna see us and we're mm -hmm. like, oh, you know, what does that mean? You know, what do they want from me? Because there's this sense of, we just don't have a lot of good education around what does it mean to care, which is to give and receive equally, which is like that same problem that, you know, these doctors have, like they are holding this kind of private thing and they were scared anyone would see it, they wouldn't love them, you know? And, but to love someone is to love all the things about them, even the things you don't understand. And so I always feel very passionate about how do we learn how to love? How do we learn what it means to care? And how do we learn how to participate yeah, I guess for, for me, the question is, or, or where, you know, I get a text from someone that, that needs help moving or something. There's this, yeah, there's this part of me that fears something. I don't know. It's irrational, I guess, but there's this fear of losing myself or I, I guess that's where maybe presence comes in is once I could ground myself, I could kind of see that all of these scenarios are completely just made up of these random images of me just dying while help, helping him move or something or whatever it is. Um, but I wonder if that's, you know, that that's also a, a pattern of maybe having had relationships in the past where I'm not fully seen in all of my parts. And there is a little bit of pain in being in relationship to those people. And now I'm maybe associating that with all relationships or all types of help. Mm -hmm. you know yeah, I mean? We have to learn how to, also, you know, I talk about this in the book too, about like having really learning what our five are, like what are our, you know, who are the people that really matter and actually who do want to hear about all your parts and who are interested in what your struggle is and who actually is invested in what that means and what does it really mean to be a friend? And so to me, it's like that, you know, I was talking about earlier about that, you know, our foundations and contemplative care is like learning what it means to care, which is to give and receive equally. And then there's a reason why the divorce rate is like, you know, more than 50%, because we don't understand what we have like strange expectations about what it means to be in a relationship and what people owe us or how they should behave or we just have so much loaded in. And so learning how to actually ground ourselves in our own experience so that then we can actually see the other person and actually be curious about like, what is your deal? Like, actually, I don't even know what your deal is. And maybe I don't even know what mm. mine is. Let's go for a walk and talk about it. 
Yeah, that that place of I guess curiosity and openness, I think, you know, for me is something that I can increasingly enter into because I've maybe done a little bit of work on feeling okay with who I, you know, not needing that interaction to be some referendum on who I am. And I think that's where that openness comes from. What do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, any places that we can begin cultivating that space where there's more openness is important, you know, like so that there can be some freshness. I mean, it's why in, Mm. you know, I know mostly in Japan and maybe in other Asian countries, like there's this emphasis on do, like that do drop mind, which is that fresh mind that and it evaporates really quickly. It's like, wow, that every moment is like that. And we can actually learn how to show up so that we can be open and filled with wonder. Hmm. Uh, well, you've, you've certainly uh, inspired me in, in that way. And I, I appreciate that. I, I'm so happy you were able to do this. Thank, thank you so much. Total pleasure. Really sweet to spend time with you too. All right. That was Koshin Paley Ellison. Once again, you could find Koshin at zencare.org which, by the way, is based out of New York City. Pretty cool. I want to repeat that Soto Zen quote that Koshin shared um, from Dogen that is so profound. I think if you remember one thing from... Actually, I don't want to say that. I don't want to say if you remember one thing from this episode because I I don't want to enable you not doing anything about your poor retention skills. Just kidding. You're lovable as you are. This is really a gentle reminder to myself to pay more attention to what I'm reading. I, I often forget what I read. So that, that's what I'm speaking to here. It has nothing to do with you. Also, Koshin said uh, a lot of incredible things that I also hope you remember. But either way, I, I would love to just end by repeating the amazing quote that he shared. Life and death are of supreme importance. Time swiftly passes by and opportunities are lost. On this night, the days of my life are decreased by one. Each of us must strive to awaken. Awaken. Take heed. Do not squander your life. That's it for this week. See you next time.